Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. I'm your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. So glad you're here. Welcome to all of my new listeners. Last episode was by far the most successful of the podcast run so far. So you know there's a bunch of new people out there listening. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hope you're enjoying the show. As usual, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which now also has ratings. Those ratings really help the podcast get exposed in the algorithm to more people. So really appreciate everyone that's been doing that. Please, if you have a second, hit five stars on the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, please follow me, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V, on both Instagram and Twitter, as well as the podcast at Pop Pantheon Pod. Join the Discord chat tonight with me and lots of other fun people uh, January 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Enjoy the Spotify's essential playlist of every artist we ever talk about on this podcast. The links for all of those things are we on social media and are in the show notes of this episode. Send any questions you have about this episode, about past episodes, about the Pantheon in general to poppantheonpod at gmail.com so I can answer them on a future mini-sode. And let's just get into it about this week's topic, which I know will be an education for a lot of people that are listening to this show as it was for me. This is an artist that is so incredibly important and influential on so many of the pop stars that we all know and love today. And I'm really excited to be able to present this person's career to people that may not know that much about her or who may just know her for the few hits that have stood the test of time, but don't really know her whole story and also like the true extent of her artistry and impact, which is pretty profound. And it was a real treat to get to look into that myself. And now I can't wait to share that with you all. So without further ado, for all my girls that just want to have fun, here's Pop Pantheon Cindy Lauper. There's a question that's come up a bunch on this program. What happens when a pop star's first hit is their biggest? And in the case of Cindy Lauper, a foundational early MTV era superstar who burned fast but so very bright in the early to mid 80s, What's it like when that hit and its accompanying debut album, like Walkman's or Velvet Scrunchies, literally become so indelible, so iconic, so impactful, so baked into popular culture that it's completely synonymous with an entire decade? It's a blessing for a pop career for sure, searing you into the bedrock of entertainment history. But a smash of that magnitude so early can also define you in ways that you may not be ready for so early in your musical evolution, making it hard for the public to see you as anything else. Raised in Queens, New York, Cyndi Lauper was the product of a rough and tumble upbringing rife with divorce and domestic abuse. With her brassy New York accent and attitude, window smashing four octave vocal range and distinctive cartoonish personal style, Cyndi spent her early 20s fronting cover bands, honing a skill that would define her later musical oeuvre, the ability to take another artist's song and fully and wholly make it her own. This eventually led to a brief stint in the commercially beloved dud of a new wave band, Blue Angel, and eventually a solo deal with Epic Records. There, with the help of producers Rick Chertoff and William Whitman, Cindy set about crafting her seminal pop masterpiece, 1983's She's So Unusual, comprised mostly of cover songs completely overhauled and imbued with her singular star quality, freewheeling image, and chameleonic powerhouse voice, 
She's So Unusual became an out-the-gate sensation. The first album by a female artist to feature four top five hits while running the gamut of musical styles with ease. Bruce Springsteen-esque arena rock on Money Changes Everything, New Wave and synth pop on All Through the Night and Shebop, and tender power ballads on the number one smash time after time. It also featured the lead single to end them all, her cover of a little-known Robert Hazard song called Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, an utter joy explosion of a first hit that defined not only Cindy's entire career, but also carved itself into the Mount Rushmore of slumber party anthems, standing to this day as a constitutional early MTV hit. So unusual made Cindy an icon to rival the other pop titans who emerged in this period, like Prince, Michael Jackson, and Madonna. It was the rare pop album to contain a panoply of hits, critical acclaim, and in the burgeoning 360-degree version of pop stardom established by MTV's dominance in this decade, a fully realized visual aesthetic. Cindy's free-spirited, streetwise, eccentric every girl persona, paired with her neon-hued WWF-styled haircuts and peculiar but unforgettable punk rock technicolor outfits, played like counter-programming to the more self-serious art pop aspirations of some of the other aforementioned superstars of this era. It is widely considered to be one of the best and most influential pop albums ever made. Cindy followed up She's So Unusual in 1986 with True Colors, a record that pivoted away from the weightless, rainbow-hued gloss of Girls Just Wanna Have Fun and exposed a more activist bent. These songs explored issues like the AIDS crisis on tracks like Boy Blue, police brutality and racial injustice on her cover of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, and of course, featured the gorgeous number one smash self-empowerment anthem for the ages, the title track, which stands to this day as perhaps the prototypical self-love pop anthem. And I see your true colors shining through. I see your true colors. And that's why I love you. So don't be afraid to let it show your true colors. True. Cannot be understated how radical it was for Cyndi Lauper, then an A-list pop star, to be speaking so explicitly about HIV and LGBTQ plus issues in 1986. This was brave, pioneering work and should be revered as such. The fact that the record was also a commercial smash further cemented Cyndi as one of the mid-1980s premier pop acts and seemed to point towards a career with longevity as a profound pioneering superstar. But in 1989, while artists like 
like Madonna and Janet Jackson expanded the sound and ambition of pop for a new decade on records like Like a Prayer and Rhythm Nation 1814, Cindy released her third solo effort, A Night to Remember. This album, due in no small part to conflict with her label, which scrapped the majority of songs Cindy had originally intended for the album, ended up as her most anonymous, anodyne, and backward-looking to date. The public's response matched. It debuted at number 37, a huge come down from She's So Unusual and True Colors. Almost as abruptly as she had exploded into a supernova just six years earlier, it seemed Cindy's commercial fortunes had fallen off a cliff. The record did, however, feature her last top 10 hit, her cover of Roy Orbison's I Drove All Night. I drove all night. Pop can perhaps be the most fickle beast in all of entertainment, always magnetizing towards the next hot thing. And the flop of A Night to Remember proved to be a fatal blow to Cindy's standing as a pop star. She followed it up with a couple of very good records, 1993's A Hat Full of Stars and 1996's Sisters of Avalon, both records that delved further into Cindy's activism and showcased her ability to elegantly construct pop records about tough, then less prevalent issues like domestic abuse, the ongoing AIDS epidemic, and trans perspectives before these were common topics in pop music. But both were non-starters on the charts. Cindy, it seemed, had been relegated to an emblem of the past, the face of early MTV frivolity and forever the girl who just wanted to have fun, even if the woman and musician she'd grown into was capable of so many other things. Cindy continued releasing solo albums through the 2010s, dabbling in American songbook standards, dance pop, and even country, continued to tour to a large, devoted core fan base, and was consistently held up by the LGBTQIA community as an ally and icon. And while her solo career never recovered on the charts, Cindy enjoyed an unexpected late career renaissance in 2013 when she wrote the music and lyrics for the smash musical Kinky Boots, the story of a drag queen which went on to win six Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and made Cindy the first solo woman to win Best Score in Broadway history. It also exposed this monumental talent to an entire new generation of fans. Lopper has sold over 50 million records worldwide. She's won Grammys, Emmys, and Tonys, making her one of only a handful of artists in history to win three of the four major American entertainment awards. An almost EGOT, if you will. She's an inductee into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and also won the inaugural Best Female Video Prize at the 1984 VMAs for Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, which is widely credited as one of the greatest music videos ever created. She has had nine top 10 singles and three number ones. Her debut album, She's So Unusual, was included in Rolling Stone lists of the 500 greatest albums of all time. For her advocacy on behalf of the LGBTQIA community, Cindy was invited to be a special guest at the second inauguration of President Barack Obama in 2013.
here on Pop Pantheon to get unusual with me about one of the most important and influential pop stars of the modern era is the ringer's own Rob Harbilla. Okay, so I'm here with senior writer for The Ringer and host of the podcast 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, Rob Harvilla. Rob, welcome to Pop Pantheon. What's up, dude? It's an honor to be here. I'm so grateful to you for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do this. I'm excited too. The, you know, preparing for this has been a bit of an education for me because mm-hmm. you know I was born in the late '80s. I didn't grow up during Cindy's heyday, and mm-hmm. you know I feel like she was such an important artist in the you know beginning and middle part of that decade, iconic in that period. But it was sort of short lived. So I of course like knew all the hits, and I'm familiar like generally with who she is. But I really yeah. enjoyed the opportunity to get to like deep dive into like. A, some of her later period albums, and also just like read about how important and influential she was at the beginning Me of too. that decade. Me too. This has been this has been a very satisfying deep dive. I agree completely. Sometimes I enjoy this process. Sometimes I enjoy it a little less. But like this was genuinely fascinating to me, beginning to end of her career, to 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 get into it, to immerse in a way that I hadn't either. You know, I I did grow up in her heyday. Uh, and that changes my perspective, I'm sure. But yeah, I'd lost touch with her plenty of times. And to, to go back and, and hear it all chronologically, it's it's been wild and it's been rewarding, genuinely. I completely agree. And also, like, I kept waiting for, like, a record that was like, oh, this is trash. Like, this is horrible. Like, But honestly, like, all of her albums ha- have, like, redemptive qualities to me. Like, I never was, like, engaging with one of these records and being like, oh, yeah, she really fell off at this point. Like, even though she commercially did, I felt like at least in terms of, like, being interesting to listen to on some particular level, like, even a lot of her records that have gone unrecognized are pretty good. I agree. True to herself, you know, like they, what you don't get from her, what I don't hear in even the records that didn't do well commercially is like a desperation to do well commercially. I'm still I'm sure some more than others she was really disappointed about. But there's there's a self-confidence and there's a being who she is and being where she is and like a comfort level with that that I get way more from her than I would from someone like Madonna, right? Like it never feels like she's chasing a hit. It never feels like she's at back at the bottom of the mountain and like trying to claw her way back up. There's just a comfort and a self-confidence that she has even when she's lower down like the totem pole in a commercial sense. Yeah, I agree. And I'm sure we're obviously going to have to talk about Madonna quite a bit in this conversation. But um, mm. actually, my hot take, not to make everything contemporary, but my hot take was like, is Cindy Lauper the Kesha to Madonna's Lady Gaga? Wow. Um, That's but, a pretty hot take. <laughs> thank you. But um, <laughs> I feel like there's an interesting conflict that would be fun to pull apart in this conversation between sort of like the persona that she established on her most prevalent hit, which is Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which is this sort of frivolous, tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. joke of a song in some senses, and right. this sort of like pretty self-serious activist themes that she dove even further and further into in her career that seem almost like oppositional artistic impulses and like a bit of a window into maybe why she struggled a little bit later in her career because people became so attached to her as this singer of girls just want to have fun. Frivolous, and that, right, right. And that might not have been who she really was as an artist ultimately or not the whole picture anyway. 
No, I mean, she was very early and even to call them like songs about issues or like serious songs or like very special pop songs sort of undersells them. But it's just it, it is shocking to me to go back and songs that I heard as a kid and loved as a kid or had an effect on me as a kid to find out, you know, that they are about like the AIDS crisis, that they right. are, you know, about about drag queens, like like things like that. It's hard for us sitting here in 2021 to frame like how radical that was in the 80s. Like I was thinking about Taylor Swift, like you need to calm down, right? Where she does like this huge <laughs> yeah. gala and like you you can sort of gauge how how sincere that she was with that, how calculated it was. But like the difference between Taylor Swift doing that, you know, a couple years ago versus Cindy Lauper having this activism, like establishing these charities for like LGBT homeless youth, like just stuff like that. Like from the very beginning of her career, there's been this aspect of her career, as you say, like this seriousness. And there's a read of Girls Just Want to Have Fun that's like, it's a very serious, a very sad song, but I don't even think you need to, to frame it that way. It's a joyous, ecstatic, frivolous pop song. But yeah, I think it, it, it made people think that's all she would be and that she didn't have anything to say, but she always always had and mm. she always will absolutely yeah that's such a good point and i think that like there's an elegance to her sort of mm -hmm. activisty songs that you need to calm down couldn't possibly ever touch <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> all right so let's go back and you know this is a really fun opportunity for us because we haven't covered a ton of 80s artists up to this point so i'm really excited mm -hmm. to like use this as a bit of a like scene setting for this period just to yeah. get us into this a little bit so i often feel like the way we think about a pop star today was a concept that crystallized in the early 80s. Like, obviously, we've had pop stars before that. We have artists that do pop music for, you know, as long as recorded music has existed. But I feel like the way we think about how a pop star looks, operates, tours, performs, mm -hmm. what they mean in popular culture, kind of crystallized with, you know, obviously the big titans we think of, like Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, mm -hmm. George Michael, all these people in the 80s. So... I guess I want to ask as my first question, who would you consider to be the quote unquote pop stars who predate these like 80s monoliths? How do they set the table for our concept of like the modern pop star? Who are the particular ones of these that you feel like help set the table for Cindy? And why, generally speaking, is the early 80s such a huge crystallizing moment for modern pop stardom? Okay, so, okay. So what fascinates me about your show is the way that the Pantheon, right? That the Pantheon you've established maps onto the eras and just the way that a pop star the definition of a pop star has changed and like mm -hmm. why does your timeline start right here why does your timeline start in the early 80s it's mtv like mm. it's a hundred percent mtv to my mind i just yeah. i i was born in 1978 my memories start you know in 80 83 84 85 when i'm five six seven years old i and already music is defining my life and like the three pillars of my life therefore are the radio my parents record collection and mtv six, right. five four we've gone for main engine start we have main engine start. ladies and gentlemen rock and roll this is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. 
doing a show about the 90s in which I'm hypothetically talking in part to people who didn't live through the 90s about what it was like and what was different. One of the things I find hardest to even try to explain talking to myself is the pure dominance of MTV. Mm. If you were living like I was in like suburban rural Missouri in the early 80s, if you didn't have access to anything else in terms of the wider pop music world other than MTV, then I just the way I revere, as you say, Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, even right. like born in the USA. The stuff from that era, that the MTV videos from that era, like I made the decision to um, to listen to her whole catalog and immerse myself in Cyndi Lauper's voice before I rewatched the girls just want to have fun video. Right. I did. I did that. I did that finally like an hour ago. Yeah. And it made me emotional. It's like that, that watching that video is as close as you can get to just putting 1983 in a syringe and jabbing it into my neck. Like the way that I, <laughs> I haven't watched that video in several decades and I have internalized like every frame of it. Mm-hmm. That video is just part of my DNA mm. in a way that I'm not even aware of, you know, when I'm not thinking about her, the dominance of M, TV and the the way like Thriller and the way early Madonna and the way that Purple Rain and on era Prince just dominated what we now refer to as the monoculture. Look out! Can we get out of here? No, I'm enjoying this. Well, I can't watch. Excuse me. What's it say? See you next Wednesday. Talk about MTV in 2021 where it's like the VMAs for two hours and then ridiculousness, you know, for 364 days and 22 hours a year. Like, just... I can't explain MTV in the early 80s to a kid in 2021. I cannot, but it was everything. It maybe was it's everything. maybe it's like TikTok is to them or something like that. I, exactly. That would be the closest analog, but it's just whatever was on MTV was what I was into and what I was listening right. to and seeing the whole time. And that meant Cindy as much as anybody. You know, before we get into the details of how MTV shifted pop, some of the big figures that I think sort of fuck my timeline up in terms of the 80s being the crystallizing moment for pop stardom are people like, you know, Diana Ross or Donna mm. Summer. And I wonder, like, sure. how did, uh, you know, superstars like Donna Summer or Diana Ross kind of make pop stardom seem different in a pre-MTV era? Like, what was it about them and the way that they were positioned in culture that almost highlights why MTV sort of changed the nature of pop stardom? Pop stardom has always been visual, you know, it was visual right. from the very beginning. It, it, right. The visuals were as important to pop music as the songs themselves from the very beginning. What MTV did is just make that mass culture, like bring that to everybody all at once. First mm. of all, though, what you remember about Diana Ross, about anybody like that is like the quality their voice had, like their voice is visual almost. Mm. You can picture them so clearly and you can picture the universe of the song they're singing right. so clearly that like that comes through. Instinctively you give to me the love that I need. I cherish the moments with you. Respectfully I say to thee I'm aware that you're cheating when no one makes me feel like you do. Those Donna Summer hits like you just you can smell them. You can mm. feel them. You can feel the sweat on your skin even if yeah. you're in the middle of the winter in Missouri, right? Ask yourself, who they 
so I MTV just helped everybody bring that into a literal visual ubiquitous form but like that's what pop stardom has always been it's as much Mm. about the outfits and as much about the visual aspect right pop stars had to work much harder before mtv to get that idea across like through Mm. their live performances through like magazine spreads any way you could get your visual look out to the world before there was a dedicated music channel to broadcast your visual look out to the world 24 hours a day. Like they had to work that much harder, but they did it and they defined pop stardom in that way. And they set the the scene for MTV taking over everything. Gotcha. Right. And I guess like even pre MTV, like Donna Summer and Diana Ross were such visual artists. I mean, like Mm -hmm. Diana Ross, you, what do you think about? You think about like her and the hair and like the gowns Mm -hmm. and the album covers, even like that. Yeah. The vinyl album cover was so important to walk into a store and all these faces looking at you that's another element like just the itunes thumbnail the spotify thumbnail or whatever just cover art is another thing that i just sound like an old fart even no. trying to like <laughs> talk about as so much more important in a different era but it was right like you think of donna summer in that waitress outfit on the cover of she works hard for the exactly money. <laughs> exactly you know one last pre-mtv superstar i'd like to bring up is debbie harry as somebody who sort of tread the line between the sort of pre-mtv version of a pop star i guess more rock driven maybe working more like a rock star but also who helped crystallize the sort of image driven glossier aesthetic and artifice that would define the mtv era pop star and also just in terms of her ability to sort of tread the line between Mm -hmm. more serious rock star persona and this glossier thing feels like a real precursor to sydney Okay, so let's get into Cindy a little bit. Who is she? Where is she from? Like, quickly, just some light background on her and then how she kind of ends up, like, pursuing a career in music. Uh, I believe she was born in Brooklyn. She was. raised in Queens. A very good line from her. She wrote an autobiography a while back. She said, I speak the Queens English, but the borough, not the person. That's a very good line. So She's got some. She has some great one-liners that I'm gonna. I saved. Really I saved a few to my notes. I'm gonna save them good, for later. Good. Good. <laughs> no, let's hit me with a few of those later. Yeah. <laughs> and so, first of all, it's Cindy Lauper's speaking voice. The power of it, the appeal of it, can just not be understated just no. in stage banter or whatever from the beginning of her career until now like she is a girl who was raised in queens sure no i used sun in when i was 12 but when i was nine i did my hair for st patrick's day with some food coloring but green. didn't neighbors throw rocks at you yeah they did you didn't want to tell <laughs> you didn't want to tell that part no you know what happened <laughs> what? i went to college uh-huh i was studying to become a brain surgeon and um when I came back from school, now we could communicate on a different level. Yes. Her autobiography is rough. You know, I it's without getting really into detail, it's just she had a rough childhood. You know, mm. she had a rough upbringing. She has a lot of pain to excavate in her art 
from the very beginning. She epitomizes for me this idea of Palm becoming new wave because she's she's a rock singer on one level. Yes, she, absolutely. She has a four octave range. She mm -hmm. has this incredible singular when she's singing, you will not mistake her for anyone else ever in your life singing voice that's exactly. just so cartoonish yep. and so elastic and so powerful. And mm -hmm. so she could have been a pure punk singer. She could have been a pure rock and roll singer, but she also has this cartoonish pop-like appeal to her like the, the early 80s for me even thinking as a critic now i see the early 80s as this childlike time which mm. of course i do because i was literally a child but like when you talk to me about the early 80s what do i think peewee herman yeah. um, i think about the <laughs> wwf right like she has a lot of wrestling imagery early in her career but like uh -huh. primary color early 80s you know, Hulk Hogan, et cetera, WWF, like the Goonies, of course, Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. I just there's just something so childlike and so candy colored and so so cartoonish in the best possible way. Like right. the best possible Betty Boop yeah. about her, just this Looney Tunes aspect that she always had. But I do imagine her coming out of Queens as this cartoon character, mm -hmm. just this, this sort of Tasmanian devil whirlwind who could sing anything, who fronted a bunch of cover bands. Right. And so she could sing literally any style, literally any song, but like also she became from the beginning like an interpreter. Mm. So that's how that's how I think of her to start. I love the notion of her. Well, first of all, you made me think of so many things. I mean, in terms of thinking of her as her cartoon, her cartoonist personality obviously lends itself so well to the MTV era in a way that like mm -hmm. obviously was fundamental to her explosion was this sort of like yeah. cartoon imagery the way she appears in music videos her hair you know you talk about the WWF they also her share hair. haircuts with the, she also mm -hmm. shares some haircuts <laughs> with those guys but um, obviously it's hard to talk about Cyndi Lauper without thinking about Madonna because they came up so simultaneously and there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. One thing that I think is so interesting about Cindy and this notion of her having kind of a rough and tumble upbringing in Queens is she kind of does have like a streetwise edge to her and like a sort mm -hmm. of also sort of like a working class vibe to her that like yes. I know Madonna didn't grow up with money but Madonna always sort of aspired to be upper crust upper class sort of like super sure. art with a capital A like working with the finest mm -hmm. fashion photographers and everything had to be like an artistic statement of the highest order with Madonna and there's this thing about Cindy where she sort of feels like more just like an every girl kind of like mm -hmm. relatable, like she could be your BFF in a way that like Madonna, I don't feel like ever felt. And so her upbringing speaks to that in a sense. Like she has a little, right. she has that kind of like, I'm a girl from Queens vibe to you, into her. You know what I mean? Like that apartment in the girls just want to have fun video almost feels like, yeah, that probably was just what her apartment was like <laughs> growing up. <laughs> Absolutely. You're either from New York or you're not. Man. Yeah. You can, you can move You can Zing. move to New York from Michigan, you know, and I did it too and left, you know, but it's like you're a, you're a New Yorker or you're not. Yeah. And people will smell it on you for the rest of your life, whether you are or not. I agree. So you talked about her fronting these cover bands and that gave her like quite a bit of flexibility in terms of genres she could sing and made her like a great interpreter of styles and mm -hmm. of like cover songs. I mean, one thing we're going to get yeah. to when we get to the debut is that like more than half the songs on that record, I believe, are covers, which is a really fascinating thing, uh, which I don't mm -hmm. think a lot of people realize that like girls just want to have fun. It's a cover. Like that's not her. Because song she original. took it. 
it. Like she owns it, right? Yeah. yeah. There's no point in even remembering the original no. version for most people. But she does eventually go from being this front woman of these cover bands to this band called Blue Angel, which is sort of like the precursor to her solo career. So talk to me a little bit about Blue Angel. How do they form? Like, what's the musical aesthetic exactly? And yeah, let's start with that. The, the only Blue Angel record, right, is is self-titled. It's Blue Angel from 1980, right? Yeah. And it's if you the, the the closest you can get to describing it is like a rockabilly yeah. type thing. <laughs> Again, it's it's punk shifting into new wave. It's right. new wave shifting into pop. Right. There's there's like a rockabilly overlay. And so like listening to this record in twenty twenty one, it's like I, I come out of this record and I don't know what year it is. Like mm. it's like retro upon retro upon retro. You know, it's like back to the future, like in the eighties spoofing the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, Best Coast vibes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that is excellent. Best Coast is an excellent. Yes, yes. When you listen to the Blue Angel record now, it's easy to say now that she's a superstar, but like, it seems like it would be clear to anyone watching this, like, who is that? Oh, who yeah. Who is singing? Like, it's a good band, and it's a good record. It's a fun, whimsical keyboard type record but it's like she is just howling mm. from beginning to end and they're just these monster vocal performances like there's a song called I'm Gonna Be Strong yeah. that has like this monster diva finish to it and it's like mm. that is the star You know, like you read a little bit about this and like they, they wanted it to be a band. Like she wanted the whole band to get a record deal. Right. You know, it's like the, the analog now would be something like Paramore, I guess, mm. where like they, they want it. They want it to be a, a rock band and like a legit thing. But it's so clear who the right. star is. Or Gwen and Stefani. Yes, and right, right, right. And so Gwen Stefani, for many reasons, is an excellent person yes. to talk about. But it's just, the record flops, right? Or it just doesn't sell very well or just doesn't have a breakout hit or whatever. And so it's not a success by music industry standards. But, like, it's it makes clear to people, you know, that this pugnacious girl from Queens with a four-octave voice who can sing anything, like, somebody needs to just take her and just do this shit. Yeah, if you watch some of the live performances from that era, I mean, it is like kind of, as you said, like you're immediately just bowled over by her voice mm -hmm. and by her stage presence. Like she is sure. so the definition of star quality in some of those stage yes. performances. And like freewheeling spirit. Like the other thing about Cindy is yes. like, you know, I and we'll get to this when, we, when we're about to move into her debut album, but like she performs quite differently than like a lot of the other pop stars of this era who are like all about sort of like tight dancing. She really performs like barefoot, wild child, like rock star energy in that way more than sort of yes. modern pop star. So as we said, Blue Angel, 
flops, critical success, commercial flop. So how does she then transition from this band to getting a solo record deal and starting to put together her debut album, She's So Unusual, in, I believe that, like, that album came out in 1983, so I guess this would be in 81, 82. I think she found her manager who just picked her off a stage, right? Mm. But it's just this story at its core is, like, somebody walks into a club not knowing what they're about to hear and hears her voice, and it's just, that's it. Right. Like, it only takes one person to do that, and somebody finally does that, and somebody, you know, assigns her to a label, you know, that can get her to the masses and sort of crafts her an image that is her, you know? Right. They, they don't change her into somebody else. They magnify what she already is, which I think is crucial, which is very important. I, I You lead with the voice, and as you say, you lead with the ebullience on stage and sort of, again, the punk rock kind of energy she has versus any pop diva, as that term is defined, if it's defined at all, in their early 80s. But you just know. You just look at her and you know what she is capable of, or you think you know what she's capable of. Right. It's, just, it's obvious. So she gets to work crafting this debut album, She's So Unusual, with these producers, Rick Chertoff and William Whitman. Do you have a sense of like how they worked collaboratively and like how you might describe the overarching sound of that album? It's As you say, it is very strange that this record is mostly cover songs, right? Right. And so that's the first thing that's very interesting to me about it. Yeah. So she, can, can I just list for you the first six songs you certainly may so unusual yes I, I i will never get over this as long as i live yeah. money changes everything yes girls just want to have fun yes when you were mine prince cover t- mm-hmm. time after time mm-hmm. she bop mm-hmm. and all through the night yes most of those are covers not all of them i will put those six songs in a row up against any six consecutive songs on any record ever made mm. i know there are i'm not saying that's the best of all time but i will have that conversation about like a beatles record about a yeah. prince record about it, thriller that is it is an incredible opening six songs to mm-hmm. me it's just it's unparalleled to my mind certainly as a debut I just, I cannot believe it. But I, the sound of this record, again, like, you start with Money Changes Everything, right? Yes. Which is a straightforward rock song. Bruce Springsteen, I thought, a little bit. Very, yeah. very, very much Bruce Springsteen. the cover of this band the brains mm-hmm. it's like in my spare time you know don't get involved at this but like i listen to a lot of just power pop playlists like fairly obscure 70s sure. 80s power pop where it's just band after band after band i've never heard of right and like these songs more than anything are just incredible pulls to mm. like hear these songs that are obscure and to realize like cindy lopper could sing the hell out of this song yeah. cindy lopper <laughs> can redefine this song so it happens with money changes everything right. it happens with girls just want to have fun which we will talk at great length about i will say that i'm pretty sure i prefer her when you were mine to princes
All Through the Night is another one. Like this dude, Jules Shear, wrote it. And like the song is there. Like that one almost more than anyone, like any other cover song that she does on this record. Like it's complete. Yes. All Through the Night is there. And it's just for her or for her producers to hear that and realize like she could turn this into like a pop smash. varied i mean so as you said like some of these songs sound more like rock songs some sound more like synth pop songs i mean there's like a lot of different aesthetics that she's able to like hold together just purely under like the force of her just effervescent personality and vocals it's not exactly like a coherent sounding album per se right would you agree with that i think it would be totally incoherent if she weren't the through line i think the real miracle of this record is that she makes all of this her own and she makes it all make sense together because she makes sense doing all of it i think that's the miracle of this record. and she's so kind of like earnest and appealing in that way like i feel like she approaches this with so much integrity and so much like she's so authentic feeling from the beginning in a way that like oftentimes even on early madonna like on that first Madonna record you can feel her like trying things on a little bit Mm -hmm. um I feel like there's something she just attacks this with such earnest gusto that you're just so into it and on every different guys so the debut single is this song called girls just want to have fun how does she take this sort of demo this rock demo from this guy and turn it into like the biggest pure pop girly anthem of all time listening to the original version of this song as well it's a dude named robert hazard yes in this song it's this guy whose parents are asking him why he's not married yet and it's it's because girls just want to have fun they don't want to date me (laughs) they just want to have fun Like, the question you have to ask yourself is, like, is he saying, like, girls are too frivolous and stupid to get serious and date slash marry me? Or is he, like, good for them? Right. You know, just leave me alone. (laughs) But, like, the girls are doing great. But, like, Cyndi Lauper takes this song. And I saw somewhere where, like, she said it was misogynist. I don't know if that's true. I saw that, too. I would love to know the exact degree of like this song is like half a cover song and half an answer song, right? Mm. Like it's like, oh yeah, it's it's fascinating the way that she reframes the song and like the bones of the song, the melody or whatever is the same, but just switching the perspectives, it becomes this anthem, you know, this empowering anthem before the term empowering anthem, long before that term becomes like a cliche and like an eye-rolling thing. Like it's yeah. like legitimately empowering. Yes. And again, it's like that this is far beyond making a song your own. This is Mm. hijacking a song and just rewiring it to be what you always knew it was capable 
of being. And like, there's a Dave Eggers riff from a long time ago that I half remember about how like this is the saddest song ever sung because like the implication is like girls just want to have fun because they can't because they're girls because they're oppressed etc etc uh. like, i don't remember exactly what he said but like i i can agree that there's a sad undertone to this song but like that thing where the only way to confer prestige greatness onto a song like this is to argue that it's secretly right. sad right and it's secretly a tragedy where it's enough that this is like just a joy bomb unparalleled like this is just the giddiest sing-along imaginable and it's perfect as just that i completely agree i just wrote this is pure joy like this is mm. like the way that pop music is like the sound of a smile it's like that's this song yes. you know what i mean and mm. i don't think that's what the song is saying the lyric is when the working day is done girls just want to have fun this is a song about modern women this is a song about like in some senses there we go. The, the lyric is about we go to work and then we like to cut Nine loose to a little five. bit after work. You know what I mean? That's a modern concept. We work hard, we play hard. Yeah, we work hard, we play <laughs> So in addition to being one of the most iconic songs you could ever hear, we talked a little bit about the video. How does like Cindy's persona come across in this video that perhaps separates her from a Madonna or something like that? I mean, I made a corny joke about it earlier, but there's something about the decision to introduce yourself to the world, to wrap your persona around this word unusual, mm. right? And it was the right word, but it's even as she becomes instantly a pop star, you know, a chart-topping pop star, it frames her correctly as an outcast. Yes. As like just a singular human. Right. As somebody on the outside looking in, she's from Queens and you're going to know it from the first word out of her mouth. Mm -hmm. She's not a blonde bombshell and she never will be. It's just, she's just eccentric. You know, she's like like a manic pixie dream girl, you know, <laughs> totally. before, oh my God. before that phrase got like, you know, poisoned to death by like too much discourse. That is it's so like, true. This is such an eccentric and true to herself person who just does whatever the hell she wants. And it, you believe her, you believe it. Again, like I know there's any pop star, anytime there's tons of calculation and everything, but it's just, she feels so guileless to me i know she's not i know there's an enormous amount of guile behind everything she's ever done but still it's just you believe her you believe that this is the really her this is a side of her and you believe that like how she's acting in that video is some, to some degree how she acts in real life it was just a complete character as delivered in the first video the first time you ever saw her yeah, you know, I actually think, yes, of course, we don't want to, like, undermine the guile or undermine the sort of, like, work and thought that went into this stuff. But I do think these early era MTV stars, there was no precedent. There was no, True. like, they really were kind of, like, freely experimenting with what the fuck this new art form was going to be. And mm. I don't think it was as, like, facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile that we now often see. It really did totally. feel like... Yeah, let's give it a whirl. Like, sure, this, like, you know, weird concept. Like, her outfits in it are absolutely absurd. <laughs> like, she looks crazy. She does. And, you know, she's not traditionally gorgeous or anything either, nor is she trying to play that up, which I think also adds to the kind of every girl perspective. This video is about, like, girls hanging out after work. Like, there is this kind of, like, feeling of she's just one of the one of your friends that you could meet on the street. And I also think... The slumber like, party. Right? Yeah, slumber party and the pure joy 
joy that you hear in the song as you were getting at at the beginning of our conversation is extremely on display in the video. I mean, this video, it is so pure hearted and so much like pure fun. Just watching her in this extremely bizarre, funny, outfit and all of these other friends of hers in these other strange bizarre outfits dancing through the streets of new york just like cutting loose being freaks it is actually touching to watch it like it actually is a move it's moving as a video and i didn't even grow up with it like i was just watching it you know i've probably (laughs) seen it before but I, i i certainly don't like have like deep childhood attachment memories this video i was moved by this video like i think it also has to do with her pureness and her authenticity and her lack of sort of like putting on too much of like an artiste guise and just sort of going for the fun and not needing it to be much more than that, that is accessible and lovable and lets you in, in a way that like Madonna, it was sometimes hard to get in. Sure. I'm thrilled to hear you say that because I I was wondering the extent to which like pure nostalgia is responsible for the way that I feel about her and the way I feel about this song. The fact that that translates even to something, somebody a little younger is is of a great relief to me. Let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Okay, that first Madonna record, as you say, it's got borderline, you yep. know, holiday, lucky star. It comes yes. out in July 1993. She's So Unusual comes out in October 1993. Is there a plausible moment? 83. Sorry, sorry, 93, yeah. 83, excuse yeah, yeah. me. Yes. Both in 83. Is there a plausible moment at the end of 1983 where you could convincingly argue that Cyndi Lauper would be the bigger star? I think yes. I mean, if you're looking at the success of this album, because Madonna's pop stardom doesn't crystallize till 84 in the dress on the stage. I feel like... Exactly. That's the moment. That's, that's the, moment the moment where that conversation ends. Yes. Exactly. Like, Madonna on that first record was like, you know, obviously that album is like also kind of wall-to-wall classics and like, mm-hmm. you know, is incredible. But I don't really feel like Madonna crystallizes as a fully formed who we think of her now until that second album and until the Like a Virgin performance. And, you know, the Like a Virgin performance, the whole aura around that also, just to contrast them, is just so like filled with irony and filled with like all of these layers mm-hmm. upon layers of, again, like capital A artiste perspective on pop. Whereas like this music doesn't have that to me. Like Cindy is almost free of artifice in a certain sense, in a way that like makes her so singular. But I think, yes, I mean, this record was like she emerged on this record. Like we still think of Cindy Lauper to this day as the girl in the Girls Just Want to Have Fun video. We don't think of Madonna necessarily as it's certainly not her most iconic you know imagery on that first record so yes I'm I would say the answer to that question is yes with the caveat that I think having your first record and song be so huge and so good could be a little bit of a curse in a pop star's career I agree with you completely like in terms of you know and you talk about this in setting the pantheon like is this person tied to a specific era and yeah. I am hard pressed I am hard pressed to think of a pop star in history or a pop song in history that digs a deeper hole to <laughs> dig out of in terms of tying you to one moment the way girls just want to have fun as a total success ties her to 1983 it is kind yeah. of amazing to think about it that way that like I, I think I'll, the plurality of people still see 
Cindy Lauper that way and love her for that. Mm. I don't know how many times on this show you've dealt with the issue of like the first album and like the first single off the first album being without any question the peak. Mm-hmm. You know, as as you say, almost everybody else, including Madonna, builds up and like what does it mean? Like what are the disadvantages of the peak coming immediately? I mean, not saying that this record stacks up to She's Not So Unusual, but I will also throw out there, coming back to my earlier proposition of is Cindy Lauper the Kesha to Madonna's Lady Gaga, not only do we have like kind of like the more sort of like scrappy streetwise versus like the capital A artiste, but TikTok by Kesha, best Kesha song. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I have not gone back to that in a while, but I, I respect that. Um, I'm you know, an animal person there. Kesha, was yeah. Cindy Lauper on stage with Kesha for the Grammys thing? Oh, you're right. Thing? I think she might have been. I forgot about so that. So I, that is a really, Kesha is an excellent I agree. person to bring Also, up. she was another and one that Katie was Katy Perry. Yeah, Katy Perry. Right? I, the, like somewhere I, I in the middle of that. I know you have strong Katy Perry feelings, <laughs> but yeah. So let's talk about the second single, Time After Time, which I think, you know, almost equally iconic, maybe a notch lower, but still a pretty iconic Agreed. smash hit single. And one of the only songs she actually wrote, and that's an she original wrote. on the album. And to me is my personal favorite. Cindy song. So, how would you describe the sound of time after time versus kind of like girls just want to have fun? Like, how does it present a new, different contour to Cindy's musicality and personality to the world? Time after time is like the quintessential 80s power ballad. Right. Right? You know, this the synth pop power ballad, you know, and, and just it, it, even I'm sure with girls just want to have fun still cooking on MTV, there was this thought that like, what else can this person possibly do? Like, I am sure immediately that song was overshadowing anything else yes. she would ever pull out. And so to have a song like Time After Time that's so quiet and so tender mm. and so elegant and so sweet, like just the range inherent to these two songs is incredible. The range that this shows right off the bat, even these two songs, is enormous. Yeah, her voice is so different sounding on this song to me than it is. Like, mm-hmm. she's putting on a little bit of this, like, squeaky affect, this Marilyn boop boop doop aspect on Girls Just Want to Have Fun. This does not have mm-hmm. that, really. This just is no, more it does not. kind of like a this straight, is this is Marilyn. how she sings, just sort of standing at the mic spotlight. This is how her voice just sounds. I keep, like, thinking of contemporary analogs, but I'm like, you know, driver, driver's license and good for you. Like, two wow. very radically different sounding songs that presented, like, two so- different modes that this girl could operate in that really like visual to visual Mm -hmm. aesthetics oh man that like solidified that she was going to be more than just a one-hit wonder not by necessarily Mm -hmm. giving you the kind of like just dance into poker face same thing twice but like giving you two radically different versions of like what 
she could possibly do and inhabit or do modes she could inhabit. Range. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Very equally well, which is like an interesting setup and maybe like you would think might be a setup for a longer run of success. So this album, as we said, Blockbuster, one of the signature, most revered, most successful pop debuts in history, pop albums of the 80s to this day still holds that status. Why is that album such an emblematic and important record for that particular era in pop? I mean, the boring answer is that the songs are undeniable. Right. You know, whatever the context around them. Again, it's those those first six songs in sequence are yeah. unbelievable. I, I would go back again to MTV. I, I would be curious the alternate universe where MTV doesn't exist. Mm. Like what girls just want to have fun means, what time after time means. Right. You know, I just, she was perfect for MTV. She yes. was just so entirely perfect as like Madonna counter programming mm-hmm. from the beginning. I just, I, I, I do think that the visual aspects of her is inextricable and so important to her in that moment. Do you think she meant something different to pop fans than Madonna did at that point? Like, was there something that she represented that was just different to them that like made her distinct? I would go back to the outcast thing. I don't think Madonna ever tried to frame herself as like one of the guys, one of Mm. the gals, right? Like Madonna's whole thing is wanting to be, you know, the queen of pop, you know, the queen of earth. You know, right. and watching her succeed is the thrill there. But I, it's, again, it's it. We go all the way back to Queens. It's just you're watching Cyndi Lauper, and you have all these thoughts in your head that seem contradictory, but aren't. Like this is a pop star. This is a fantastic singer. This is a girl from Queens who right. I might have hung out with at and a every sleepover. Girl. You know, all of it, and every girl, and all of those things coexist at the same time. And even if you've never dyed your hair, even if you don't have the wacky outfit she does, the wacky voice that she has, even if you are not a cartoon character in your daily life, I do think that she stood in a show not tell kind of way as a, like a be yourself Mm. icon, you know, before that too became a cliche. As we move through these records, you know, I, the songs that jumped out to me are the songs that argued be yourself in various tones of voice. But I think that she broadcast that message from the onset without having to say those words out loud. She just Mm. was. She was so herself and so comfortable in herself more than any other pop star I can think Mm. of. And I do think that comes through. So talking about being yourself, her next record comes out three years later in 86, and it's called True Colors. What were the aesthetic goals of this record versus the first record? And like, what do you think she was trying to do here that differentiated it from She's So Unusual? Well, the first thing you notice is she wrote or co-wrote all of it. Right. You know, I think I think that she wanted to have, as anyone would in that situation, greater control, a greater say in the writing and the producer. You know, she co-produced it with a guy named Lenny Petz, mm-hmm. P-E-T-Z-E. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But I do think True Colors is framed as her wanting to stand on her own, wanting to show that she can write the vast majority of the songs, that she can right. take a, a stronger hand in every aspect of the creative direction and so there's a depth and an intensity and a seriousness to this record that builds on you know the technicolor you know majesty or whatever of she's so unusual but yes. like it's a very different record it's it's a darker record mm-hmm. it's a more profound record and i it's i was thinking about just being six what is it eight years old and hearing this record for the first time like i'm not congratulating myself for like sensing some 
political depth to it, but like, <laughs> her voice made me emotional. On this record, her voice made me emotional. I can I could just tell there was such a seriousness and sort of a darkness mm. to her on this record that that scanned for me and was totally vivid for me before I had any idea what was going on or why or what she was talking about on these songs. It's still a pop record. It still has pop hits. You know, right. like True Colors goes to number one, of course, and that's the only song that she co-wrote, but that's another one that she makes her own, and it has her own for all time. But there is just a depth and an intensity that comes through on this record that builds on She's So Unusual, even if the songs themselves aren't as indelible as mm. She's So Unusual, which, like, you, I could say that about pretty much any pop Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, this is definitely the record where, like, the more overt Cindy message song is born. I mean, there's a song on here called Boy Blue, which, like, is directly about the AIDS crisis. Again, as you were getting at earlier, there's really no understating how radical it was for like a mainstream pop artist in 1986 to be like addressing this so head on. I mean, yep. it, this was like at a time period where like the Reagan White House wouldn't even acknowledge that like AIDS was happening. Exactly. So it's like not like mainstream culture was in any way sort of embracing LGBTQ people. So even in a more overt way than Madonna did at this particular juncture, and we think of Madonna as maybe the ultimate modern gay icon, Cindy was like right. out here putting herself on the line, like fully. Mm -hmm. And in True Colors, which I think we should zoom in on, which is the lead single and is also has become sort of a huge LGBTQ anthem, although I don't think it's necessarily as explicitly about us as boy no. who is but let's talk about true colors and like what makes that song so special and what does it show us about cindy's artistry and maybe even more quote unquote colors than we got even on the debut album so the thing with pop right is that you know it's a great song when you can strip it all the way down to just her voice mm. you know and when it's still it's still a perfect song when it's just her playing and singing i saw cindy lopper live once i saw her opening for share around 2000 2001 somewhere in there i think they've toured a lot together yes this is believe era share like share back on top of the world cindy lopper's opening and the only thing i remember about cindy's performance is true colors which she played solo with a dulcimer like she's mm. just sitting there playing the dulcimer it was beautiful. Like, it was unbelievably beautiful. That was the mm. highlight of the entire show for me. And so the first thing you can say about True Colors is that just the bones of that song are perfect. The mm -hmm. hook, the chorus. Right. It's, just, it's, it's a perfect song, whether it's stripped all the way down or it's gussied all the way up. It's mm. just an undeniable chorus, and it just everything about it just screams number one hit. This world makes you crazy and you take it all you can then you call me up because you know I'll be there and I'll see your true
the be yourself pop anthem is like such a huge genre, especially with women. I mean, I started to list some of them out. Like I know I sent them to you on the outline. I mean, express yourself, Britney Stronger, Fighter, Christina Aguilera, Born This Way, Firework, Kesha, We Are Who Fight We song. Are, Fight Song. I mean, Brave. I mean, it's like literally like insane. So I really feel like this is the prototypical Firework. Right. This is like the the song that sets that whole genre into motion. Right. It, right? It, but it's she's doing it before it's a move, you know, before yes. it's, you know, it's genuine. Those songs she's are all always wonderful. genuine. It's genuine. It's not calculated. Yeah. You know? It's like, I am now going to sing an empowering anthem. Yes, exactly. Like she's you can never feel... done that. She just does it. No. And she just is it. And yes. her being it is as important as anything. You know, I was thinking a lot about like this sort of, as I said earlier in the conversation, this sort of conflict between the persona that she established on Girls Just Want to Have Fun and this almost Mm like 60s hippie rock social consciousness element Mm -hmm. to like the music she likes to make and also the way her persona works but it's almost like the Lilith Fair yes. aesthetic kind of like suited. I was going to talk she, about Lilith Fair. Yeah, like yes, she's like a precursor to like the Lilith Fair era on mm-hmm. this album a little bit. Like I kept thinking about just the 60s and like the way that art, like a lot of pop artists were making these like very overt, like socially conscious moves. I mean, she covers totally. what's going on on this fucking album. I couldn't I that's the that was the funniest moment for me me being eight versus now when she started what's going on it was like what The other thing I want to point out is, I don't know if you picked this up, but this record is immediately more synthetic feeling to me in terms of the production than like some of the rockier choices on- It's not rocky, yes, yeah. yes, totally. Which made it slightly more in conversation with like Madonna, the sound of Madonna's records a little bit to me, more, maybe more so. I thought She's Unusual stood out to me because there's moments where I'm like, oh, this is like a Bruce Springsteen-esque song. You could tell the production was more mechanized in some of the choices than like the way she was posited almost as like a rock front woman on She's So Unusual. No, Springsteen is a perfect way to describe Money Changes Everything, her version of Money Changes Everything. And this one starts with Change of Heart. right? Right, like a big 80s synthetic drum machine record. rock singer aspect of She's So Unusual, which is crucial to the way that it sets off like the synthier songs like that's gone or mostly gone here in a way that's a little sad. A little sad and like a little less distinguished. So True Colors goes, the single goes number one. Change of Heart, I believe, goes number three. As we mentioned, She's So Unusual was this blockbuster with, you know, the first album I think ever by a female solo artist have four top 10 hits. So this record performs well, not quite as sort of seismic as the debut. Coming off of these first two records, let's say we're in 1986, 87, Brass Tax Talking. We've talked about her personality. How is she seen 
in contrast, do you think, to the Titans, the other pop Titans coming into the late 80s? Where does she stack up, do you think, at that particular moment? I mean, as you say, even at this era, even still in the 80s, I'm going to guess that she was fighting to not get left behind in yes, the 80s. Right. Because girls just want to have fun for starters, defined the 80s so thoroughly. Like a Prayer is 89. Yes, right. right. Which is another huge leap for Madonna. And right. so Madonna is well on her way. You know, like, a as we said, like, I think any Cindy versus Madonna talk stops with, like, a virgin at the VMAs. Like, right. Madonna's on her way to being what she's going to be. And it's not that Cindy's being left behind even in this moment. Right. But I do think that there's a ceiling perceived. How is this? ebulliently childlike person going to age mm. at all like even age into her like mid to late 20s right like it's just it's well it's, actually it rob actually rob out. she was 30 when she's so unusual came uh, out. i i that's i i meant to, I I meant that, to that point that i wrong. meant to point this out to you because i think it's really because she looks very cherubic and young i mean it's, it's that's you know, incredibly important yeah. though because it's now that you say that out loud it makes perfect sense that like it's a childlike attitude but with like the grit of a 30 year old woman from right. queens right. right you can totally tell that yeah and you know it makes you wonder like you know madonna is a solid seven, eight years younger than her, perhaps. Like, she is maybe more on the pulse of how popular music is shifting and changing than Cindy might right. have been at this phase in her career as a 35-year-old at that point. Let's talk about the next record, which is like kind of marks the end of her period mm -hmm. as a commercially relevant artist. It is 1989. This is the year of Like a Prayer, perhaps the greatest art pop mainstream hit record of that decade. And okay. Rhythm Nation, another incredibly, oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, one of the okay. most transformative pop albums yes. ever released. Okay, yikes. Right. Yikes yes. for this record you know compared what, to those You know what I'm saying? Records, and yeah. I will. So Cindy releases her third record that same year called A Night to Remember, which, as we were talking about with Cheeky Cindy one-liners, she has since referred to as A Night to Forget. But it does contain her last hit, which is mm -hmm. I Drove All Night, which I think a lot of people mostly know now as a Celine Dion song. I drove all night. Interestingly, the coverer becomes the cover. Yeah, there you go. Covering Roy Orbison, right? Like right. it's first of all, she can do that. Right. She has the voice to do that. She has the low end of the voice to like do the Roy Orbison like sort of hiccup thing.
this is where I wonder what she wanted versus what she got. A Night to Remember, almost more than any record she ever made, is the one where I can't tell quite what she's trying to do, what she's shooting for. Like, there's highlights to it. That's on My First Night Without You. Yeah. That sort of starts with like a like a Stand By Me kind of riff. And it mm. has, as I sort of wrote it down, like just like an off-Broadway zaniness. Like yes. the fact that Broadway, Broadway, the fact that Broadway is our end game makes total sense. Yes. Like this is a person from the beginning, from the first record on, with a sense of character. Mm-hmm. Like, and that different characters, even within a song, and that's what's going to get her all the way to Kinky Boots. But I already feel like her ambition diverging severely from Madonna's. Like, I don't think of this record as like, I'm going to make this a number one record. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to compete against Like a Prayer and Rhythm Nation. Like, I, I'm not sure what she was trying to do. But it is her most anonymous to me. It's her most... Yes. Um, anonymous is a very good way to sum up everything. It I just think. speaks, I guess, to the pressure of pop stardom because, like, you really don't have a lot of room to fuck up, especially, like, at this in this phase of your career. You just can't. And I feel like... She kind of fumbled the ball a little bit at a crucial moment. And I'm with you. Like, who knows what she wanted? I agree with you. I don't think Cindy Lauper's not. I don't think Cindy Lauper craved world domination necessarily. That's not the vibe that I get from her necessarily. But it makes sense to me listening to this record why things never really came back together in a commercial sense for her. Well, I would, it's superficial, but it's true. This is 1989. Yeah. Like, are you coming out of the eighties or aren't you? And yes, I just, exactly. Like a prayer and rhythm nation are such tough comparison points. Yeah. Those are perfect <laughs> future. As you say, futuristic records. Yeah. Janet and Madonna in those moments are inventing the sound of nineties pop yes. in a way that this record, that way that Cindy is not trying to do. And that's the whole ball game right. right there. So as we say, Cindy's commercial fortunes end basically here, she goes from being an artist that basically defined an entire decade to being completely irrelevant over the course of six, seven years. She comes back in the 90s with a couple records. Let's just touch on really quickly. 1993's A Hat Full of Stars and 1996's Sisters of Avalon. And there's definitely a feeling like sort of like a doubling back to like, I'm going to make the kind of music that I want to make and, you know, whatever. That's the vibe that I got listening to both of these <laughs> records, right? They sound markedly different from her 80s. The album. Earth Mother side of her, the proto Lilith Fair side of her, I think is endemic to these two records. For sure. Full of stars. And it's especially Sisters of Avalon. Visions of history. Farewell in some company. But don't shove that bullshit down. I'm actually offended that Cindy Lauper did not play, was not asked to play the Lilith Fair. That would have been so perfect. I mean, this is Alanis core, Meredith Brooks bitch core. Like, she would have killed. She would have killed. Yes, yes. 
So Cindy has these couple of records. They are critically kind of well-received or better received, but commercial duds. They have a lot of great songs. I really recommend people go listen to them. A lot of great social activism songs, a lot of songs about like gay stuff, trans stuff. I mean, she was really ahead of the curve on that. And I also have to wonder how much like her commitment to those issues played into her commercial decline. She then takes a long hiatus into the 2000s, releases a cover album called At Last, where she does a series of covers. She releases a couple country-ish kind of sounding albums in the late 2000s. None of it really connects. I think she's mostly, as we said, seen as a relic of this early 80s period. But I do think Cindy's career arc and sort of this redemption that she's seen in like the later period of her career comes with this Broadway show, Kinky Boots, which came out in the 2010s. And she basically wrote a smash hit Broadway musical that won multiple Tony Awards and is about queer, gay, LGBTQ-centered subject matter. So what's the music like on Kinky Boots, and why do you think that musical theater was kind of a click point again for Cindy after 40 years into her career? We should say she was, she is an actress, you know, like never like mm. an Oscar caliber one, of course, <laughs> but like she was an actress in her videos. She, you know, she was in a couple movies here and there. Like yes. she made her Broadway, she was in the Three Penny Opera. Like she had been on Broadway before, this made sense. This always made sense. Just listening to the cast recording, right? Listen, yeah. Listening to it hard for an hour. What I love about it is you can hear her. Mm. You can hear her coming through Billy Porter. <laughs> you can hear her coming through everybody. And the different characters as different sides of her. And as you say, it's, it's about issues that she's been talking about, singing about, living from the very beginning. It's just it made such sense. For this to happen and like I, kinky boots is is wonderful mm -hmm. I, I, there's a song called step one where if you're longing for like the rock version right of cindy lopper i think that comes through the clearest i may be facing the impossible i may be chasing after miracles and there may be the steepest mountain to overcome but this is step one like we're gonna reinvent the heel like that's another killer line yes from cindy lopper your your one-liners my favorite song of this record is called or this soundtrack is called not my father's son mm. which is a ballad i think between billy porter and the rock guy i think it, the actor's name is stark sands yes and it's just, it's a beautiful song where they sort of compare experiences about growing up and like being an outcast mm. from the beginning. It's like, this is another situation. Like this is a song that Cindy Lauper was born to write, right. you know, for a blockbuster multiple Tony award winning Broadway show. Like this was always where she was going. This is where she could have been from the beginning. My father always thought if I was Strong and thought Not like some albatross I'd begin To feed him 
I was just so happy having taken this journey. As you said, such a great encapsulation of her strengths. She's such an incredible songwriter. She can speak and talk and sing in so many voices. And I mean that both in terms of like her mm -hmm. actual voice and in terms of like writing from different perspectives. Like so many of the strengths of her career and her ability to also just like add such an incredible element of authenticity and her activism for this particular community all feel like they come together in this particular project in a very unexpected way for somebody that was like, you know, an 80s pop star, but like in some right. ways makes so much sense. And I just felt having gone through this journey of exploring her work, listening to all of her music, etc. I'm so happy that this story ends with a redemptive commercial success for her because Agreed. she is somebody that I think in so many ways is tied to this one particular era and you know, we've, we've talked about that ad nauseum, but like, she's really so much more than that. And I think that that's borne out through her discography. And I'm, I just found myself just on a macro level, just so happy to see that like, she's had this later period sort of reestablishment of her talent and sort of reappraisal by the culture writ large and a new entry point for people to experience her immense talent because she's fucking awesome. And I really feel like we need that like justice for Cindy Lauper movement to happen because she's really worth it. The endless torrents of expectation swirling around my mind gave way to the rising current of indignation till I finally drew that line to So, okay, let's talk about the Pantheon. So, I, ideally, I'd love to hear where you stand. I can share first if you want, but I'd like to hear your thoughts if you have them. Okay, so process <laughs> of elimination, right? Yeah. Forgive me, Cindy. Forgive yes. me, everybody. I don't think one, I don't no. think tier one works. No. I don't think tier two works. No. I think we're really in a three and four combo, if I have to. We're, we are parsing the distinction between three and four, That's which it. I know happens to you often. Okay, so... <laughs> The real question here is the degree to which she's still tied to her era. As yes. you said from the beginning, it's like she's been fighting against girls just want to have fun against the 80s from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so it's a measure of how successful or not she's been at that. And so, yes, I am stuck between I am stuck between three and four. I could be argued into either direction. Let's, let's talk about this for one second. So in some ways, I kind of feel like she nails a lot of the four things. So like if we're mm -hmm. just talking about and again, we are fully in our right to like make a decision about this where like she, d it's not necessarily about that criteria, but like, because we are just the ultimate experts in this conversation, <laughs> like we can just do what we yes. want, Rob. Like this is That's my true. fucking podcast and I don't give a That's fuck. That's a relief. I feel great. I made these you rules sure and did. I made them to be broken, <laughs> but, but before we break them, let's just talk for a second. So tier four, one, one to two big albums with three to five big hit singles that are recognizable to many people who are not in the artist core fan base. Yes, that's mm. like yes. a nail. She had two big albums and three to five hit singles. I'd say she maybe had six. Let's say she had six hits. I was going to say slightly five to yeah. seven. Yeah. Five to seven. Okay. Let's say seven because I drove all night. Important distinction. Their name is at least recognizable to people who were of prime age in their moment. Obviously, yes. It's obvious that mm. they have one or two signature songs and it's very clear what they are. Mm. Yeah, that's... What would you say are they you, are? Are you 
Are you stopping because you're, I, well, girls just want to have fun. It's obvious. And time after time. Yeah. And then like maybe true colors, but I think it's one notch below. Agree. Right. So I do think she fits by that criteria. Right. Because I, I think agree. it's really the two. I'd say it's girls just want to have fun time after time. True colors. Drop down. Right. Yes. Agree. All right. Easily mistaken for other artists. I'd say, I'd say, I would say to people that didn't grow up and don't know what they're talking about and are fucking idiots, generally speaking, but let's say that there's like a Gen Zer. Here's like, I don't know if they'd be able to like hear girls just want to have fun and they, you could easily picture them going, oh yeah, isn't that Madonna? Really? Not, not because, not because she sounds like Madonna, but because I just think because she's kind of faded into obscurity in some ways. Mm. No? Okay. I hope you're wrong, but I hope you're wrong, but I I'm sure people have done that. I'm sure that's that's a non-zero possibility. Mm-hmm. I As mean, I said before, like I do think this is one of the most recognizable true her voices. True, true, true. But but if again, if you're a Gen Zer and you don't know shit, then how would you know even that? So I yes. But I guess a, you could say a Gen Zer could confuse Tier One artist songs together potentially. Maybe like they don't know shit. Um. All right. Right. They Michael Jackson and Prince right, sound right. the same yeah. to those people. All right. So. Their music is possibly more recognizable than they are. Like now. Here's where the visual aspect of her, like right. down to the hair color, right? Which is still a big deal and mm-hmm. a big part of her deal. It's like, I, is she about to get dinged because she remains so visually distinctive? Because I do. Yeah, she is. She's I do so think that the, the visually s- iconic. The songs are hers. Right. The songs are hers and emblematic of her to a greater degree than even huge Madonna songs. That's yes. a tough one. Yeah. And then last one is they're usually not taken particularly seriously by mainstream. And by that, I mean contemporary audiences aside from being points of nostalgia. Or yeah, yeah, that's her. Or they become critically lo- more critically lauded than commercially viable after a brief brush with mainstream success. I mean, I feel like she kind of fits that. Yes, I agree. All right, so that would be tier four. Tier three would be one to three albums and five to ten G- genuine smash hits. Yeah, okay. At least one album that had a major impact with many hit songs. Obviously, mm-hmm. yes. Defined or helped define a very specific moment. Yes. Yeah, it's still very well known and meaningful to anyone who was of prime age when they were having their moment. Yes, yes. A beefy arsenal of hits they can still tour on, even if they are far past their peak. Yes, right? Yeah, no, totally. I think people who grew up with her as a star are dying to go out and hear those five to seven hits. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like she she tours her blues record. Plays her blues record and then just plays five to seven songs. Yeah. Everybody knows more and everybody goes home happy. Yes. Exactly. Continues to make critically regarded work or work that still resonates and sells with a decent sized core fan base. I think Kinky Boots has helped rewrite that for her. I was I was going to say, if you'll take Kinky Boots and you'll basically accept like a pivot into Broadway. Yeah, I accept. Then yes. Okay. Then. Yeah. If they released an album today, it would be something most pop fans would be interested in hearing and a large segment of the population would be aware is happening. I don't think so. I don't think so either. I yeah. like the, the la- her last record was the country one was Detour right. in 2016 and like I that didn't work as well for me as like the blues record or the no. dance pop record no. or the singing ass like Tony Bennett duet singing record. No. So I don't know on that didn't one. Didn't work for me and yeah. I also didn't know it happened until I was getting ready to do this. <laughs> both <laughs> and i both consider myself pretty well. engaged in pop music all right so that's correct 
could possibly launch a successful Vegas residency. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Mm, no. Yeah. Mm. I, that's well. Here's the thing: you can picture so much about the look and feel of that show for sure. But I wonder now that Vegas has become such a playground for like bigger, con- more contemporary stars. Like, I think definitely in 2011. But like, right. what about we're, now? We're I mean, fucking Britney Katy Perry Celine. and Lady Gaga have, are, are on the Vegas, are doing Vegas. It's a little oversaturated. Yeah. Mm, I think that's a that's a maybe. Couture. Maybe a cruise. <laughs> <laughs> definitely a cruise. No question, a cruise. Definitely, definitely a um a hard rack cafe. Mm, yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, could tour large theaters or amphitheaters if far removed from their big moment? I think she tours large theaters. If I if it's correct, I think so. Again, I saw her open for share in an arena. I don't yeah. think she could. No, she couldn't play in an arena. arena. But I think she could do like Radio City, maybe. No, sure. Beacon, oh, sure. the Beacon, yes. the Beacon, the Radio City. I th- I think either Beacon, Beacon would be good. But no, Radio City. I can yeah. picture like just I can picture the crowd. <laughs> that yes. I, here's what I'm gonna posit to you as a final answer. Tell me what you get. I think she's really in between, but I think the level of iconography from the original eras just puts her in three just by dint of our ethereal ability to make this decision that's what i'm gonna say i agree with you and i think i think what puts her over the top as i said at the very beginning is mtv that she is one of the five to ten people who defined the mtv aesthetic which in turn defined the entire pop star aesthetic as I understand it. And so on, on the strength of that alone, yes. even if she's one of the lesser known people compared to Michael Jackson, Madonna, Prince, et cetera, et cetera, like still, she is very much a part of that. And that gets you, that bumps you up half a tier yes. or whatever she yeah. needed. <laughs> so All that's right. it. I'm good. I think we did it. I'm good at that. You good with that? All right. All right. Me too. So I agree. Last question for you, Rob. What is an underrated Cindy Lauper song? Maybe from one of those 90s records, something we didn't get okay. into in detail that we can send the podcast out on. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. In 2008, mm-hmm. she put out an album called Bring Ya to the Brink. Yes. Which is like her dance pop record. Mm-hmm. And like, this is another one. As you as you say, like I consider myself fairly well informed as a pop consumer. Sure, sure, I sure. no idea this record existed. Me neither. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea she had made a pure synth pop record, but like, I not synth pop, like dance pop. Right. And I'm so glad that she did. This is a very enjoyable minor later Cyndi Lauper record. There's a song called Same Old Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like right in the middle of the record. It's like it's the angriest song on the record. The chorus is just Cindy Lauper joyously singing. It's the same old fucking story. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it so Love much. That. Love that. And so that that is where I would have us end. All right. So we'll go out on that one. Rob Harvilla, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. This was really fun. It's been great. Yeah. It was. It totally was. I do this again anytime, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right, there you have it. 
Pop Pantheon, Cindy Lauper, a tier three superstar, and what an amazing one to boot. Consider that judgment rendered. That was so much fun. I hope that inspired you to go back and listen to She's So Unusual, listen to True Colors, even get into some of those 90s records. I really can't stress enough how much I enjoyed them. So I hope you guys got as much out of this conversation as I did. And I want to extend the biggest, heartiest thank you to Rob Harvilla of The Ringer for being such a fabulous guest. Please subscribe, rate, review Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Help me get up in the rankings. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DJLOUIEXIV. Follow the podcast at Pop Pantheon Pod. Join the Discord chat tonight at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Central. Listen to the Spotify Cindy Lauper Essentials playlist. Links are all in the bio. And guys, until I see you next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.